Hello, my name is Ben, and I am your host of the Too Vague podcast this week. One word, two hosts, stories, trivia, and video games. It's going to be a very special show. I attended PAX, Penny Arcade Expo 2023 this year over the uh, Labor Day weekend. Had a lot of fun, so the next three episodes are going to uh, cover what I saw, one for each day, which was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. First off, I want to dedicate this series of episodes to my father, who passed away shortly before I started doing the podcast, and he's kind of the inspiration for, for doing this, and he was always encouraging of me going to PAX previously, so I thought that was only the natural thing to do. Also, a very special thank you to Yost, Michaela, Casey, Emily, and of course, the wonderful adoptable cats at the Neko Cat Cafe in Seattle. All excellent support mechanisms <laughs> leading up to the show for me, so and then also, thank you to all the wonderful people at Read Pop and all the people who put on the show, all the enforcers of PAX. First off, let me explain a little bit more about the Penny Arcade Expo. There was a webcomic called Penny Arcade that was popular in the early 2000s. Jerry Holikins and Mike Krahulik, who drew their alter egos, Tycho Bra and John Gabe Gabriel for the webcomic, they decided that they wanted to create a show or be able to attend a show that's exclusively for gamers, people who love games. So they conceptualized the Penny Arcade Expo. This was around 2004, and the show had many features that you see today. Keynote speeches from industry personalities, game culture-inspired concerts, panels on specific game topics, exhibitor booths from independent and major game developers and publishers, and LAN parties, tabletop tournaments, free-to-play game areas, but it was on a much smaller scale at that time. The first PAX was attended only by 3,300 people. It was held on August 28th and 29th, 2004, in Bellevue, Washington, at the Meidenbauer Center. People enjoyed themselves so much. It grew pretty significantly over the next few years, and by 2007, they had to move the event to the Washington State Convention and Trade Center in Seattle because there were over 30,000, 40,000 attendants at that time. And now these days, it's estimated that the attendance of this recent PAX West was over 100,000 people from all over the world, and that's including exhibitors. Pretty regularly, most of the PAXs that I've seen the statistics for hit that mark. In general, you've got your four PAX locations. You've got Seattle, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, PAX East in Boston, PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, and PAX Australia in Melbourne. I've been to two PAXs prior to this one, one in 2018 and one in 2019, but this is my first time attending since I started the podcast over two years ago, and the first one I've attended since the pandemic. One of the big changes for me was the shift from going 
as only a fan of video games and video game culture to going as a fan of video game culture and as a content creator. So I came up with a plan based on a, a couple of things. What I know about myself is that I tend to have an anxiety in larger groups of people in an enclosed space. If I have a plan, though, I can usually navigate and manage that situation effectively. So this was kind of perfect. Once I received confirmation about my content creator badge for the show, I started receiving invitations from a wide variety of game promoters and developers from all over the world. This allowed me to get the schedule kind of solidified ahead of time. I knew there was still going to be you know, some downtime where I could look at things, but it at least allowed me to create a plan. So I was excited about all the interview opportunities that they were saying that were available. Based on that, I decided I would bring my recording equipment, my mics, my mini booms, my headsets, my pod track, all to the show, just in case I needed it. I'd done some tests outside in the wind and cars and things, and I was able to isolate and eliminate most of the noise. I didn't know how loud it was going to be in the venue. I thought the editing, even with the noise in the convention center, I thought I could probably eliminate that. And the possibility that they'd have rooms that were dedicated to doing that kind of thing, there was a high probability of that. And if necessary, I could do the recording in my hotel room as well. That's uh, leading up to the show. About the format of these next few shows, I'm kind of inspired by my father and my stepmother. They would go on vacations to amazing places, you know, like rainforests or like Bhutan or all sorts of interesting areas. And what they would do after their vacation is they would put together all their pictures and their writings from basically a diary into a travel log type thing with their notes, writings, memories of the trip. I believe Anne, my stepmother, did most of the journaling. They both took photos, but dad put it all together. Of course, he used his very favorite computer program, Microsoft Excel. Boy, that man used Excel for everything, even if it wasn't the right tool for the task. <laughs> He loved his Microsoft Excel. But anyway, as for the travelogue itself, it served a couple of purposes. But most importantly, it was a way to remember all of the amazing you know, experiences that they had on the trip and deliver that pretty concisely in a book. So it only seems fitting that I do the same for PAX 2023 this year in an audio version on a show that I created as part of the memory of my father, which I dedicated up front. So here we go. All the awesome stuff and amazing people I met at PAX West this year. Show one of three, and without further ado, the podcast in a bag theme song. Ben was... On the road, making content for you with this podcast in a bag. Seattle. All right. The first day of the show, which was Friday, started out with a nice sustainably sourced breakfast from Homegrown, which is a chain out there. Uh, I believe it's also in California. Had a sunrise bowl with applewood bacon. Eggs, ancient grains, roasted tomatoes, wilted greens, avocado, and 
carrot lime habanero hot sauce, which I accidentally thought was dressing, so I put it on the bowl, and boy was I surprised, but it was still tasty. Of course, my favorite beverage of choice, coffee. Once I arrived at the Seattle Convention Center, a little early, I had a few appointments already booked for the day, so with some time to kill before the first one, I was right by the Ubisoft booth, and the line there was fairly short, so stood in line for a little bit to check out the new Prince of Persia game, which is Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown. Just seeing other people play it, it sort of evoked memories of the original game I played on the PC in my college days. And looking at the new one, once I got a chance to actually play it, it's got this gorgeous 2.5D presentation, but it is still a two-dimensional side-scroller, but all the things in the environment and the enemies have some depth to them. And also what adds to that is for parries and things, there are animations that kind of zoom in, sort of a movie presentation. And then there are also super move type things that you can do that seamlessly go from that 2.5D presentation side-scrolling to a much larger movie kind of just to show the animation and then right back to the side-scrolling, which was kind of cool. And here is the description from the Ubisoft website. Dash into a stylish and thrilling action-adventure platformer game set in a mythological Persian world where the boundaries of time and space are yours to manipulate. Use your time powers, combat, and skills to perform deadly combos, defeat corrupted enemies, and mythological creatures. Acquire and equip new amulets at shopkeepers to play as you see fit. Lose yourself in the prodigious Mount Kaf. Discover a cursed Persian-inspired world filled with bigger-than-life landmarks and a variety of highly detailed biomes, each with its own identity, wonders, and danger. Use your wits to solve puzzles, find hidden treasures, and complete quests to learn more about this corrupted place. Enjoy high-quality graphics, immersive cinematics, and fresh artistic direction, along with a unique gameplay fluidity thanks to 60 frames per minute rate on all platforms. Based on that alone, I'm very... well, not the description. Based, <laughs> based on playing the game... Like I said, it feels very much like the old school sort of style, but with a, a little bit more flair and usage of some RPG and more of your current platformer game elements. So I'm kind of excited to pick it up uh, when it comes out. Hopefully, I will be talking about it on the show upcoming. To the Noras out there, for people who don't know, Prince of Persia, the original game franchise was created by Jordan Mechner, and the first three games of the series, Prince of Persia, which was released in 1989, Prince of Persia 2, The Shadow and the Flame, which was released in 1993, and then Prince of Persia 3D, which was released in 1999, they were all published by Broderbund. Ubisoft acquired the Broderbund Learning Company their games division in the early 2000s, but Mechner retained the intellectual property rights of the Prince of Persia games, 
once they got permission, he was able to work on the games going forward. I remember playing the first two games on my 486DX2 66 megahertz computer. I had a fancy CD-ROM. My father bought me the PC for college, but of course I would be lying if I said I wasn't mostly interested in the ability to play PC games on it, but it was useful. So then after that, I went on to my first appointment, which was with Lost Native, which for some reason I was calling Lost Narrative the entire time leading up to this, but I finally realized, I came to my senses, it's Lost Native. They have a game coming out called Wild Country. The demo, I saw it played by one of the developers. It's about 50% done. There's no release date as of yet, but it was uh, created by an eight-person dev team. I met with Becky Matthew, who is a co-founder, CEO, designer at Lost Native. She showed me some of the gameplay elements. She described it to me as a cozy competitive card game with board game elements that plays like Hearthstone and has a story mode to unlock new cards for use. The art style is very much like Disney, sort of Zootopia. And I think she mentioned, I'm not 100% sure, but I think she mentioned that a former artist from Disney was involved in the design of these characters and the artwork, but it was very loud in our area, so I don't quite remember. You have hexagons representing the building areas, which I think people would associate more with games like Settlers of Catan, but the hexagons are a way to represent the buildings that are on the cards that you play. So essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to build buildings, level them up, and get bonuses based on your placement of these things while you're trying to generate currency to win the game. Additionally, there are attack cards in your deck, there are defense cards, so you can use those against your opponent. It's basically one-on-one. I think she said that they played with the balance by playing player versus player style games, but this is going to be through the story, you play through AI opponents. And it looks super cute. Also looks like it would be perfect as a Switch game, not to play into that Nintendo games stereotype. It is very cute and looks like fun. And this is the description from the Steam page. Wild, you know what, I always mix up country and county for some reason. So let me pause. Wild Country is a cozy competitive card game where everything clicks into place. Major Bearclaw, the mayor of Sun City, is retiring and looking for his successor. Embark on a memorable adventure to Big Sky Canyon and compete against rival animals to show who's the most tactical, sneaky, and strategic. My money's on the raccoon. Build the best city, but watch out for earthquakes, snowstorms, and rebellious raccoons. Oh, (laughs) never mind. Unpredictable events test your resolve or turn the tide of battle. Whether you are new to card games or a seasoned fan, Wild Country offers endless fun, strategic gameplay, and unpredictable mischief. I spoke to Becky about what she did at the company. She seemed very passionate about the game itself and what went into it. I really hope that we can get her on the show because I didn't ask her for her favorite word. Well, I said I was going to, but then she said 
she'd save it for the show. <laughs> so hopefully that means that's an indicator that she will be on at some point. So thank you, Becky and Lost Native, for showing me the Wild Country demo. So then after that, I was heading to my next appointment and I stopped by the Exceed booth. They sent out a request asking if I wanted to see any of their games, but they didn't reply. So, but I harbor no hard feelings for that. I understand I'm a sm- I'm small potatoes. But anyway, there was a game that kind of piqued my interest that was called Cuisineer. It's scheduled to release in November 2023 on the PC. It's developed by Battlebrew Productions and published by Marvelous Europe and Exceed Games. I describe it as part action roguelike dungeon crawler and part restaurant cooking management sim. I played through a few missions. It seems like it's interesting. If it ever comes to Mac or the major consoles, I'll definitely check it out. All the NPCs around the village have food names. So thematically, it looks pretty cool. And it's one of the types of games that I lately I've enjoyed. I think the roguelike game that did it for me was probably Hades. And then from that point forward, I'm interested in other games. I played Cult of the Lamb, which was a lot of fun and also had sort of roguelike and sim elements. So definitely one that I will check out, but only if it comes to the Mac or consoles. But here from their Steam page about Cuisineer, one day you return to your hometown of Pael to manage your parents' restaurant only to find it closed for business and deep in debt. The only way to pay off your debt is to reopen the restaurant and make it thrive. And to do that, you've got to go dungeon delving. Pursue adventure in the world outside Pael, wielding your cooking utensils against giant chickens, artillery shrimp, fire-breathing peppers, and other pesky perils, sipping boba tea along the way. Collect ingredients from the land and then take them home to cook up a frenzy and grow your derelict eatery into a sensational restaurant that will make your parents proud. Just watch out for the lunch rush. Zah! The concept itself reminds me of this game a little bit that I played on Steam and I mentioned in our cooking episode called Battle Chef Brigade, which was developed and published by Trinket Studios back in 2017. You would do things in a side-scrolling, beat-em-up kind of fashion. There were animals and plants, and you would use your combat skills to harvest these ingredients after taking them out, taking them out, (laughs) quote-unquote. And then you would use them to create dishes. Each ingredient had sort of a Tetris-like puzzle piece and colors on it, and each color represented one of three flavors. And there were other sort of match three kind of elements that would pop up as you go through. There were bones that would appear that you'd have to debone and all sorts of complexity there. But essentially, you would collect your ingredients and then go to your cooking station where you'd have all of your stoves and pots and whatnot and face off against an opponent in a timed match to basically impress three judges that they had 
And each judge would have a little bubble over their head thinking, you know, what they wanted to eat. So you would know what you needed to prepare to impress them. It was a really fun sort of game. A little short, but check out episode 63 on the word cook. I think I talk about it in a little more detail there. The game I saw next was Sailforth. I met publisher and friend of the designer Ty Taylor and David Evans, the main designer and developer. Sailforth is published by Quantum Astrophysicists Guild. Say that 10 times really fast, which was started in 2011. Ty wanted to basically just publish really fun games. So uh, he and his friend who had been, well, actually, I believe David had been working on this for a while. Let's get into that later. When I met Ty and David, Ty and I exchanged business cards and I told them I had sort of a Patrick Bateman moment because I was jealous of his business card. David caught that and chuckled. So that kind of eased my nerves a little bit. One cool thing about the setup itself was I didn't get to try this, but Ty built a traditional sort of ship's helm for the show and attached switch Joy-Cons to the spokes of the wheel to utilize the motion capabilities of the Switch. So there were people who were steering their ship with the ship's helm, which was really cool. And that sort of drew a crowd because it was pretty interesting. And of course, they were wearing their sailor getup. So they were really selling the, the product that way too. But anyway, they David had been working on this game for about six years before it was officially released in 2022, the reason why he wanted to develop a more, well, more realistic sailing game was he wasn't satisfied with game mechanics in larger games such as Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker, to name a couple. The way those games handled the sailing mechanics, he just wasn't satisfied. So he decided he was going to create sort of a physics accurate simulation of sailing and he would pass these ideas by his father who was a sailor he would get feedback from him and kind of improve the way it looked and the way it felt the game itself is pretty cool looking it's very it's kind of cartoony it's reluctantly piratish but for david it's about the sailing but the pirate sort of thing is is kind of a secondary more of an association I think a lot of people make with sailing, but it also adds a little bit to the different directions it can go. I, like I said, I think David was focused mostly on the sailing. Wood is the currency of the world, and it's also the building material for building your ships and things. So I guess that would make it wood punk. Um, maybe not. <laughs> you have a choice of different ships, and they have guns mounted on them which you will use to break apart crates, other ships, things to get those resources that you need. There's also a fishing mechanic. I didn't have a chance to play around with that during my demo. And then there is a new expansion coming very soon called Maelstrom. I didn't hear much about it because I was focusing on just the basics before I got into any of that. So he showed me the basic game mechanics Hopefully we can have David on so he can talk about what specifically is in Maelstrom. And then also, as soon as I more of a chance to play on my Mac, which I purchased it for for the show, but it just didn't, leading up to the show, I didn't have a ton of time to play it. 
but it seems like a fun little relaxing sort of game. But hopefully you can have David on to talk about that a little bit more. And here is the description from the Steam page. Explore the deep blue. Put the wind to your back and cast out into high adventure over a vast ocean spanning dozens of eccentric regions. Discover countless isles bursting with their own flora, fauna, friendly folk, and fearsome foes. That's a lot of Fs. Playfully pursue a pod of curious dolphins. Admire the beauty of the sun sinking into the icy horizon. Or run down a clutch of cowardly criminals only to accept their apologies to the tune of wild cannonry. Command a sailing fleet. Build and manage a custom cadre of specialized vessels to match any personality and play style. Buy, equip, upgrade, and modify your ship's armaments to face off against the toughest privateers this side of the eclipse side. Crack open giant clams and loot lonely shipwrecks to fill your fleet's treasure hoard and keep your crew in ship shape. Moving on. Sailing is a song written and recorded by American artist Christopher Cross in 1979 from his debut album, Christopher Cross. It was released as a single in 1980. The album at the time was already certified gold, but the song reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts on August 30th, 1980, where it stayed for a week. The song also won Grammy Awards for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Arrangement of the Year, and helped Cross win the Best New Artist Award. And that song is sort of the template that people use, and it's identified with yacht rock, which sort of became its own genre, which is, I guess, an offshoot of sort of easy listening, but yacht rock. So, rock your yacht. I moved on to the next booth, which was the Gisbred booth. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, which is a Welsh word meaning spirit. I was greeted by Haley Kraidowski, who is a video game public relations specialist, and along with her peers, facilitated my introduction to these next two games. The first one that I played was World of Horror, which is currently in early access, but the full release should be out sometime in October. The game was created by Polish developer Paweł Kosminski and published by Yesbred Games. Powell worked on the game part-time between his work as a dentist, which is kind of interesting. And there's a kind of a cool connection coming up there too. All of the in-game artwork was created using Microsoft Paint. And it's sort of a Nintendo Game Boy era looking monochrome, a survival horror turn-based roguelike manga style RPG boy that's a lot of descriptors but it's sort of a it's sort of a mishmash of those things I would say think of it as sort of a choose your own adventure that's very complex and has a lot of gameplay elements that affect your stats you kind of replay your scenarios over and over again the original person who introduced the game to me was definitely passionate about the art style and she showed me some Junji Ito work. I had heard of him, but I wasn't entirely familiar. 
with his work. I knew that he was in Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding game, that his likeness was in there. But other than that, I really wasn't super familiar with his manga work. And then a few minutes later, I spoke to Rob Cox, who is the production manager for the game. And let me just say, it, it is... Even with his guidance, I sort of stumbled through the gameplay mechanics. I didn't really quite understand where I was going or what I was trying to accomplish other than I was investigating all of these strange incidents and anomalies, you know, and fighting monsters and spirits and not trying to go insane. But I think this is one of those games where it's not 100% clear the first couple of times that you play through it, what you're trying to accomplish. But through those replays, that's how you build that, by repetition. And then you figure out your strategy as you go forward. But the first playthrough, I had no idea what sort of strategy. It seemed sort of random, which I guess is part of the appeal. The enemies were very creepy looking. So here's the description from the Steam page. The old gods are reawakening, clawing their way back into a world that's spiraling into madness. In hospitals, abandoned classrooms, quiet apartments, and dark forests, strange appearances of unexplainable phenomena test the sanity of residents in Shiokawa, Japan. Is it chaotic retribution or machinations of beings beyond our comprehension? This is World of Horror. The end of the world is nigh, and the only solution is to confront terror reigning over the apocalypse. Experience the quiet terror of this one-bit love letter to Junji Ito and H.P. Lovecraft. Navigate the hellish roguelite reality, turn-based combat, and unforgiving choices. Experiment with your deck of event cards to discover new forms of cosmic horror in every playthrough. The inevitable awaits. Junji Ito, which I didn't know a ton about before, did a little bit of research here. Junji Ito is a Japanese horror manga artist. His notable works, Tommy, it's a series that chronicles an immortal girl who drives her admirers mad. Uzumaki, which is a three-volume series about a town obsessed with spirals. Gao, which is a two-volume story in which fish are controlled by a strain of sentient bacteria called the death stench. These are all very interesting concepts. Ito's work has developed a substantial cult following. I wouldn't call it a cult following, right? I would call it just people who admire the work. But I did speak to someone at the coffee shop who's Japanese, who when I said Junji Ito, he kind of like, oh, ooh, very creepy. But anyway, Ito's work has been called Iconic Horror Manga. Junji Ito was born on July 31st, 1963, in Sakashita, which is now part of Nakatsugawa Gifu. Ito began drawing manga at the age of four, taking inspiration from the works he read in magazines which was thanks to his two older sisters who sort of exposed him to that. So here's that link between Junji Ito and Powell, who created that World of Horror game. Uh, Ito became a 
dental technician in 1984, but he was struggling with his work-life balance. He worked three years until he became a full-time mangaka, which is, I guess, a manga artist. In 1987, he submitted a short story to Monthly Halloween that won an honorable mention in the Kazuo Umezu Prize. Apparently, that person was also one of the judges. And that story ran for the next 13 years in that publication and was later serialized as Tommy. In 2006, Ito married picture book artist Ayako Ishiguro. They have two children together. The work that I'm most interested in of Junji Ito's, if there's one work that I want to check out as quickly as possible, it is Junji Ito's cat diary, Yan and Moo, which was released in 2007. If I go to Japan, I definitely want to check that out, see if I can find a copy of that. Probably super rare, though. The story, or the series of stories, is about him and his wife living in a house with two cats. So it's sort of one of those fish-out-of-water things where you have, he's a horror artist, but he also has to deal with these cats and thinking of like what they're doing and how they're handling things. So it seems like it would be pretty funny. So I can't wait to check that out. Next, the same booth, I was introduced to a game called Demon School by Necrosoft. It's a turn-based strategy type of game that kind of reminded me of Persona 3. I met the designer, author, director, Brandon Sheffield, and got to play the game in a special press area. They showed me to this booth where they had the game all set up and ready to go. So it was private. It was just me sitting on a couch playing this game. And they left me there with a set of instructions. I tried to figure it out myself in the brief time that I had. Each one of these appointments was usually between like 15 minutes to 30 minutes. This instruction sheet, I wasn't putting two and two together. Even looking at it now, it's a little confusing to me after the fact. But then once Brandon stepped into the room and started explaining things, I kind of picked it up as he was explaining the concept. And I think this was part of the way through the story. So I'm guessing the tutorial will will break this down and make it more understandable and digestible. The premise, he said, was based on the PS2 era Shin Megami Tensei Devil Summoner games. I think it was Devil Summoner. Uh, Shin Megami Tensei had some games that were, I think there was the Digital Devil Saga and there was another one. The one that people are usually most familiar with are the Persona series, but I remember playing a couple of the other ones too. It's just the one that connected with me most was Persona. The character aesthetic grid map, battlefield type of thing. It's very much of that era of the PS2 games, but it kind of feels modern and fresh to me. I don't know if it's the artwork or just the way it feels or the flow of the game, but it just feels different in a good way. It's also different from those games. This RPG is sort of, there's a lack of power selection. So it's not like you have to choose an attack and choose you know, what type of attack it is or what power you're going to use. Each character has their own inherent powers. You just have to line them up and have it move and attack. So it's very easy to understand. There's not, well, it wasn't easy for me to understand at first, but then after the fact, I understood that it was just about 
lining them up and letting them do their thing and was very quick and easy. And then you had to only be concerned with the enemies and how they attacked and, and defended themselves. So it was a lot of fun. I, I started to enjoy myself and enjoy the story a little more after I got the mechanics down. Brandon also demoed there's a relationship building mechanic, also pretty common in, in Shin Megami Tensei type games, and how that impacts the way your character fights and responds and interacts with other characters. So he was demoing that for me, but that was just right before the alarm, the closing time song started playing. It wasn't closing time. It was just as annoying because it was signaling that everyone needed to leave the exhibition floor. So I'd really like to get Brandon on the show too. I'm going to say this probably after every single person I I talk about, but I'm really interested in what he does and his sort of arc. I've I've done a little bit of research on him about the games that he's worked on before. And it, it seems like he would be very interesting to talk to about some of the things that he's, that inspires him, that he gets passionate about. So From the Necrosoft press page, here is the description. Demon School is a new style tactics RPG where motion equals action. Defeat monstrous creatures in between the human and demon worlds as Fae and her misfit companions while navigating university life on a mysterious island. The game has a deep story loaded with side quests, characters to find and befriend, new setups for your clubhouse, and an irreverent horror-tinged vibe. Demon School marries 2D sprites with stark lighting and 3D backgrounds and effects to create something akin to a 70s Italian horror film. Demon School wears its influence on its sleeve. The lighting and colors are influenced by vintage Italian horror. The avatars are influenced by manga and illustration horror giants. And we started from those visual touchstones and then abided by certain specific visuals and hardware constraints in order to achieve the cohesive look and feel. Essentially, we conceptualized a fictional game console and stuck to its hardware rules while making this game. I guess it's sort of designing a game around how it felt to play a PlayStation 2 Shin Megami Tensei game, which is kind of cool. The music complements the vibe with It's 70s-tinged synths, chorals, fretless bass, and hopefully combines to create something that looks and feels somewhat familiar, but is ultimately wholly unique, which is exactly what I felt. It felt familiar, but it definitely was unique. This is all, I think this is talking to Brandon from the Necrosoft press page. In terms of the battle system, we started from the idea of removing as many clicks as possible from traditional tactics games. You don't have to choose an enemy or what kind of attack. You move in a direction, your character reacts accordingly to whatever's in their path. We find this makes for a smooth tactical experience that still gets your brain moving. You can rewind at any time. During the planning phase, the game is still challenging, but you are working with all the information at hand, and the challenge becomes, how well can I do this? As opposed to, can I even do this at all? And there are no dice rolls. As for the friendship mechanics, here's the connection to that, and then we'll wrap up the show. Speaking of friendships, if you don't know, a friendship is a finishing move introduced in Mortal Kombat 2 in response to groups who were concerned about violence in video games. I think the PMRC was one of them, but I'm not 100% sure. 
specifically the fatality finishing moves of the original Mortal Kombat arcade game. Friendships were also featured in Mortal Kombat 3, but were not used again until Mortal Kombat 11's Aftermath expansion in May 2020. By the way, Jax's smooth jazz friendship is amazing. Go watch it. The home console release of Mortal Kombat was one of the games featured in the 1993 congressional hearings on video game violence, which I've mentioned in previous shows has been cited as the origin point of the ESRB. We kind of discussed this a little bit more in more detail in episode 77 on the word rating. Noor and I discussed the hearings a little bit. And uh, I explain the development details of another console game featured in those hearings, which is the ridiculous game Night Trap. Check out that episode. It's a pretty crazy game, but it's an interesting story about how something... They had a concept in mind for Night Trap due to producers, other influencers in the development of this thing changed into something that was ridiculous. And eventually, the government found to be violent, but it was just silly. Anyway, check out that episode. To end the day, I added a cool, just basically wanted to find something quick and easy. I ate at this noodle and dumpling place right by the venue called the Dough Zone. I had milk tea which I'd never had before, but it's basically what it sounds like, sweet milk and tea together. What I had to eat was the Cubao pan-fried buns, beef stew noodle soup. It was suspicious and delicious to kind of reference our suspicious stew episode. Also, I had pork and shrimp pot stickers for dessert. After that, I walked back to the hotel, did a little bit of preparation for the next day, and then hit the sack. So that was day one of the Penny Arcade Expo. Stay tuned. We've got day two coming up. Hopefully I will have that out shortly. Thank you for joining me on this day one of PAX episode of the Two Vague Podcast. My name is Ben, and I will talk to you next time. Have a great night. Bye.